So as I was preparing for this new sermon series that we are beginning, I came across an article that was written two months ago and published in The Guardian, and it was talking on the, the issue of, of marriage. The article is titled, Marriage is an Inherently Misogynistic Institution, So Why Do Women Agree to It? And the article goes on to say this, Marriage is not now and never has been designed with women's happiness in mind. From the days of empire building and daughter trading, to the advent of engagement rings and the growth of the wedding industry, to the mid-century myth of a happy housewife, everything we've been told about marriage from start to finish is a diabolical deception. When you peel back the layers of history and propaganda, it's impossible not to want to completely destroy this inherently misogynistic institution. I think of marriage as being like the colorfully decorated wagon the children in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang are lured into by the royally appointed child catcher. Once women are safely ensconed in it, the bells and whistles adorning the exterior fall away to reveal nothing but a cage. Marriage is an unsalvageable lie designed to keep women in service to the patriarchy and away from realizing our full potential. We should reject it entirely and refuse on principle to willingly add our names to a list built primarily on the backs of women who had no choice, no rights, and no freedom. End of quote. You see, articles like this one, as well as a general drifting away in animosity towards marriage and the culture, and even, believe it or not, within the church, has in part sparked this new series that we're beginning now on marriage and family. Marriage is truly under attack from many different sides. And so how do we as Christians living in this world respond to articles and and things like this? Is it true? Should we reject marriage entirely? How do we respond as Christians to attacks on marriage? Well, one way that we respond is to call out the other side for their faulty reasoning. You see, there's one theme that I noticed as I read through several articles that were very similar to this, is that those who are opposed to marriage don't actually understand what true marriage is. They're attacking this caricature of marriage that they have made, not true marriage. I mean, heaven forbid that men start committing to one woman instead of sleeping around with a bunch of them. Heaven forbid that men start providing economically for their wives. Heaven forbid that men start loving their wives selflessly as Christ loved the church. I mean, what a, what a terrible world that we would live in if men actually started doing that in our society. You see, many people who have a problem with marriage, they don't actually understand the true beauty of marriage that I just described there. And they really just hate the the bad expressions of marriage because of their experiences and likely because of their sin. And I agree that we as Christians should be against bad expressions of marriage. We should call them out when they're bad. We should fight against bad marriages continuing on in a way that is 
is honoring to the Lord without any change. But the solution is not to abolish marriage entirely because some people practice it in a poor manner. The solution is to reform marriage back to what God has designed it to be. And that's why for this first sermon of our series, we're going to look at exactly that. What is marriage as God has designed it to be? But before we start, I want to address two things very quickly before we start our series. First, this sermon series is for the benefit of everyone, no matter where you're at in your life or in your marriage. You see, you might be thinking to yourself, I have a wonderful marriage. What could I possibly learn uh, from, a, from a series on marriage and family? Why do I actually need to hear this? Well, first, there's, there's always room for improvement in your marriage and for moving forward towards God's design for marriage, no matter how good your marriage actually is. And second, it's more common than you would actually think because I've talked to many people who think that they have a really good marriage, only to realize that their spouse has been living a miserable life for the past five years and thinks their marriage is absolutely terrible. And so no matter where your marriage is at, good, medium, bad, this series, if you, if you will let it, if you will humble yourself and if you will take advantage of this time to, to talk things over with your spouse on the drive home, talk about what you learned, talk about how your marriage can grow and improve. If you repent or you see sin permeating your marriage, then this, this sermon is going to benefit you no matter where you're at. Or maybe you're here and you're, you're a single person. And you're thinking, well, I guess the next few sermons are just a write-off because I'm not married. Well, you see, if you're a single person who desires one day to be married, learning about marriage doesn't start right when you get married. You know, the preparation for marriage, learning what it means to be a, a husband's material or wife material, what it means to honor God with your marriage, starts far before you say the words, I do. And so if anything, this sermon series is especially important for you if you're single. And even if you don't desire to ever be married, know that the majority of people that are around you are are going to be married. And it will be of great benefit to you as their brother or sister in Christ to know what God's word has to say about marriage so you can come alongside and strengthen them as God's word commands us to do. And so that's the the first note I want to mention. This sermon series is for everyone. Don't write this off that that you don't need this. Even children, this is going to be a benefit for you. And the second note that I want to mention is that you also might be thinking to yourself, Lucas, you've only been married for six years. What could you possibly tell me about my marriage? Now, if I was standing up here and giving Lucas his advice, for a good marriage, then that point would be somewhat valid, though I think still a little bit proud. But that's not what I intend to do in this series. You see, as a minister of of God's word, my job is not to stand up here and to proclaim to you my thoughts and my opinions and my advice. My job is to proclaim God's 
advice for marriage and what God has to say about marriage. So yes, I, I am young. Yes, my marriage has not yet weathered the number of storms that many of your marriages have. And I have a lot to learn from many of you on that topic. I'm still growing in my marriage. I'm still figuring out what I've done wrong, what I've done right. But ultimately, whether I'm 28 or 78, God's view of marriage doesn't depend on, on my experiences of that marriage. And so if I'm standing up here sticking to the word, you know, that is what carries authority, not, not me and my advice and my experiences. And so with that in place, hopefully now you're ready to, and, and eager to learn and to, to grow this morning. And so you can turn in God's word as we see what he has to say about the topic of marriage. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25. It's eerily silent in here. No kids are crying yet. I can't believe that. I guess my kids are gone. So, Genesis 2 verses 18 to 25. Hear God's word this morning. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, found, there, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. This is a, a beautiful and a fully packed passage that documents for us the very first marriage that ever occurred. And throughout our series, we're going to return back to this passage time and time again because it is so full and it is, I think, the foundational passage for marriage. But for this morning's sermon, we're just going to focus on one very simple question. And that question is, what is marriage? What is marriage? If our society is able to answer this question properly, we'd see a lot of change. What, what is marriage? And I have four points to help us answer that question. Now, this isn't exhaustive. This is what comes out of the text. But these are the four points. First, marriage is instituted by God. Marriage is instituted by God. Second, marriage is a covenant before God. Marriage is a covenant before God. Third, marriage is beautiful. And fourth, marriage is foundational to society. Marriage is foundational to society. So those are the four points that we're going to look at. And I'm convinced 
that if we think of marriage in terms of these truths, this is going to set all of us on the right path towards a better and more God-honoring marriage, something I think we all, all desire. And so first then, marriage is instituted by God. And we see this in verses 20 to 22. I'll read them again for us. Verses 20 to 22. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So here you have the first marriage that takes place and the one who is behind all of it is God himself. You see, it is God who sees that Adam has no helper fit for him and who brings this deep sleep upon Adam. And it's God who goes and who, who takes a rib out of Adam and fashions a woman from it. And it is God who presents Adam then with this bride that he has prepared for him. See, Adam didn't ask for marriage. God is the one who sought it out and instituted it as something that would be good for Adam. And that has some implications for how we look at marriage. First, since God instituted marriage, God is the one who defines what it is. I remember when I was a little kid, uh, we used to invent these games that I would play with the neighborhood kids around our backyards. And if there was uncertainty about one of the rules in these games that we had invented, to get clarification, you needed to go and ask the kid who made up the game. He invented it, so he's the one who gets to define the rules. And the same is true with God and with marriage. God is, is the one who invented and instituted marriage, and therefore God is the one who defines for us what it actually is. And on top of that, he's also the one who determines how our, how our marriages are to function. You know, he's the one who knows how a marriage can be successful. He's the one who determines the roles that are to be assumed within a marriage. He's the one who determines the purposes and, and who can and cannot marry, how it can flourish and, and be something that is truly amazing and beautiful. It's God, the institutor of marriage, who defines all of that for us. And in this passage alone, we see that God has defined already certain parameters for an acceptable marriage. You see, no helper was fit for Adam among the animals as they're paraded in front of him. And so we learn from that that bestiality is not an acceptable form of marriage. We also see that the helper that God provided for Adam was a woman, not another man. And so we see that homosexuality is not an acceptable form of marriage. The woman that is brought to Adam is a woman and not a child. And so we see that pedophilia is not an acceptable, uh, an acceptable marriage. And then we also see that God brings to Adam just one woman and not multiple women. So we see that polygamy is not an acceptable form of marriage. You see, God in this, this very small passage has already defined many of these parameters that he 
he sets as acceptable or unacceptable marriages. And so then the government, for example, can't come along and say to to us or to its citizens, hey, we're changing the definition of marriage. I'm sorry, you don't have the authority to do that. Just like I can't come along and, and people are playing a soccer game and pick up the soccer ball and say, okay, I'm changing the definition of soccer, now you can use your hands. The government, nor anyone, has the right to redefine marriage and say, now this is an acceptable marriage or this is, is not an acceptable marriage. It's instituted, it's instituted by God and defined by God alone. There's much more that I could say on the institution of marriage by God, but for the sake of time, I think we'll leave it there and we'll probably pick it up in another sermon later on. What you do need to remember from this first main point is that it is God who has instituted marriage and therefore he's the one who defines it. He's the one who establishes its purposes. He's the one who sets its parameters. And very important to us, he's the one who knows how it flourishes. Any self-help marriage book that isn't rooted in what God has to say about marriage is probably not going to know the secret to how marriage flourishes as revealed in God's Word. And so if you want a strong and beautiful marriage, if you want to experience all that God has designed it to be, start by, by turning to the founder of marriage, the Lord God, to see how it's done. So that's the first point. God has instituted, marriage is instituted by God. Second, marriage is a covenant before God. Marriage is a covenant before God. Now the word covenant is in the Bible quite a bit, but what does that word actually mean? Well, essentially, a, a covenant is when two or more people become united together through the exchanging of promises, pledges, and then often signs or symbols that, that remember or celebrate that covenant and the promises that were made. So, for example, in the Bible, we see that God makes a covenant with Abraham, where God promises to to bless Abraham, to to make him great, to make a great nation out of him, to bless all of the nations of the world through Abraham. And then Abraham promises to circumcise his his sons. And then we see there is a sign, which is actually the circumcision itself, of that covenant that was made between God and Abraham. Well, likewise, marriage is also a covenant after this same pattern. Two people are uniting themselves together under God where promises and signs of those promises are exchanged. And there's numerous passages in the Bible where marriage is called a covenant. And that when it's violated, the covenant is being violated. We won't look at all of those passages. (coughs) But for our purposes this morning, we do see that even within our passage... In Genesis 2, the covenant is introduced. Let me read for you verse 24 again. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now the word covenant isn't mentioned here, but this is is very clear covenant language that we see. You have two people who are being united together by their commitment to one another, In marriage, you have both 
two, two distinct people leaving their previous families and then coming together to form this new family, this new relationship, this new bond, this new unit, where there's no more two completely distinct individuals. But the Bible says they're united together as, as one flesh in a covenant under marriage. And the, the promises that are present for that covenant are the wedding vows that we make. If you ever wondered to yourself, what's the most important part of a wedding? The most important part of the wedding is hands down the wedding vows. Because it's through the vows, it's through the promises to one another that you're entering into the covenant of marriage. And that's why when those, those vows or promises are broken through our sin, it's such a, a painful thing. It's such a, a serious thing. Because we've, we've violated the covenant that we've entered into by violating our, our marriage vows. And as a quick aside, I think it's a good idea to, to sit down with your spouse and to review your wedding vows from time to time. You know, to remind you of, of what you have promised both to your spouse and to God. And this can be very helpful, especially when, when things are rocky in your marriage. I mean, if you'll sit and you'll look again at those things that you've promised to your spouse, that you've vowed to, to love them in health and in sickness, that you've vowed to love them in good times and in hard times, that you've vowed to love them in the mountains and in the valleys when they deserve it and when they don't deserve it, that can strengthen you to, to, to fight for your marriage, to, to hold fast to those things that you have, you have promised to them and before God. Now practically, why is, it, why is it important to understand that marriage is, is a covenant? I mean, to you it might just sound like, okay, it's a covenant, why is that actually important? That just sounds like fancy theological language for saying that two people have gotten married. Why is, why is understanding marriage to be a covenant important? And for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you two reasons why we should think of marriage this way. First, understanding your marriage as a covenant is going to prevent you from seeing your marriage as a social contract. As a social contract. You see, that's how many people today see marriage. Marriage is a contract in which you exchange your services for the services of another. And as long as we are both happy with the services that we are getting, we'll continue on. But as soon as things change from what I would like to be, if, 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 I, if I don't think they're living up to the terms and conditions that were promised, if I don't even like the terms and conditions anymore that were promised, if I'm just not really you know, feeling it anymore, I don't, I don't feel in love like I used to feel in love, well, then I'm, I'm free, free to cancel the contract whenever I would like. That's thinking marriage in a way that is, is thinking of marriage as a contract. But marriage is, is not like that. You know, marriage is not like a gym membership that you can, you can cancel whenever you want and then start up a new one at a different gym whenever you want. Marriage is, is a covenant. You are committing yourself before God. You don't just get to, to leave when it, it isn't working for you anymore. That's what Jesus blasts his culture for doing. You know, if their wife wasn't performing in marriage as the men had, had liked, they would just 
issue them a certificate of divorce and the woman would be on their way and they would be on their way. But Jesus reprimands them for this type of thinking. He says, hold on a second. Don't you know that from the very beginning, a husband and a wife have become one flesh through marriage? He says they are no longer two. There's not two people anymore, but they're one. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, unfortunately, there are times when serious sin can so desecrate the covenant of marriage that the Bible permits divorce in certain circumstances, which we're going to talk about in a later sermon. But the general theme that we see in the Bible is that divorce, no matter the reason, it's always something that's sad. It's always something where we say, that is, that is broken. That wasn't supposed to be that way. And it's sad and it's broken because when divorce happens, when, when splitting happens, you have the division of the one flesh that has come together through marriage and you have destruction of that covenant of marriage. And so understanding marriage is a covenant, not a contract, is going to cause you, I hope, to really take your marriage more seriously and to, to cause you to, to work hard towards restoring a broken marriage when the covenant has been violated. A second implication of seeing marriage as a covenant is that it increases grace in your marriage. It increases grace in your marriage. You see, covenants are built upon grace. We're told in Scripture that marriage represents the new covenant the Lord Jesus has formed with His church. That the love and grace that Christ displayed for us on the cross when He died in the place of sinners like you and me is the same grace and love that we should be filling our marriages with. That's why I read that passage earlier, that Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Your love is to model that same grace that the Lord Jesus has shown us. And by grace, I mean extending favor to your spouse when they sin against you and they don't deserve favor or love. That's what Jesus does to us. Jesus doesn't abandon his covenant when you sin against him. Jesus doesn't say, I've had enough of my wife. She's not performing the way I want her to. I'm, I'm done with her. No, Jesus looks not to his own interests, but to your interests, to my interests, to the interests of his church. And he extends forgiveness where forgiveness is not owed. And he loves even when we're unfaithful to him. And all of these same truths apply to our marriages. Marriage is not a covenant of law. It's a covenant of grace. You are going to fail in your marriage. Your spouse is going to fail in your marriage. You're not always going to live up to your marriage vows. Your spouse is not always going to live up to their marriage vows. But because it is a covenant of grace, and this is very important, we don't love our spouse based on their performance in marriage. You don't love your spouse based on how good of a job they're doing. You don't show them love only if they're being loving to you. We love in a covenant of grace. That's a marriage. A marriage built off law is one that says, if you're going to do good, then I'll, I'll, I'll try and do good. Or I'm going 
I'm going to keep these things, and when you fail in them, I'm going to judge you very harshly upon these things. Now, it's sad. We don't let sin go uh, un, undealt with. If someone is in sin in their marriage, if someone is abusing the, the marriage covenant, then that needs to be dealt with. Forgiveness doesn't just mean forget about things that have happened. But we do extend grace, the same grace that God has extended to us. And so your marriage should be marked by forgiveness. Even when your spouse has deeply wounded you. It should be marked by love and respect, even when it's not deserved. It should be marked by faithfulness, even when your spouse has been unfaithful. That's the covenant of marriage. And I get that that's hard. That's very hard. It was hard for Jesus to go to the cross and to die for your sins. But he did it anyway. And the same power that he did it with is the same power that he offers you to walk in his steps, even in a difficult marriage. So we've seen that marriage is instituted by God. We've seen that marriage is a covenant before God. And now moving on to the third point, we see that marriage is beautiful. Marriage is beautiful. Look at verse 18 and then down to verses 22 and 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And now in verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, if you read through, this is in Genesis chapter 2, but if you read through the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, you'll notice that every time God creates something, there's the phrase that we see, and it says, and God saw that it was good. You see, all of God's creation was perfect and wonderful and, and glowing in brilliance exactly as he intended it to be. But we do see, in verse 18 here, that there was one aspect of his creation that he looked at and he said, wait a second, that right there is not good. It's not yet complete. And what was not good was that Adam, the first man, was alone. And there was no helper that was fit for him. He was incomplete. He, he, he needed someone to assist him in his task that God had given him. Someone to love. Someone to care for. And so God in his mercy puts Adam into a deep sleep, takes a rib from his side, and forms for Adam this beautiful woman, and he presents her to Adam. And you can you know, hear Adam's joy in his response. First of all, he's just had to have all the animals pass before him and see that very clearly none of those are a helper that's fit for him. He sees them coming with their helpers and with their um, companions, but he's still all alone after all of that. But then he wakes up and God is standing there before him with a bride by his side. And Adam cries out in joy at last. Finally, bone of my own bone. One of, one of my own kind. A, a helper and a companion so that I am not alone. I think this highlights for us really the beauty of marriage. 
mean, I'm incredibly thankful that Adam found no helper among the animals. Because now I get to reap the, the beauty and the benefits of being married to my wonderful and beautiful wife. I have someone that I can learn from and someone that I can teach. Someone that I can be corrected by and someone that I can correct. Someone that I can forgive and be forgiven by. Someone that I can weep with when I'm sad and someone that I can rejoice with when I'm full of gladness. Someone that I can come home at the end of the day and know that they will love me and appreciate me even when others in my life don't. Someone that I can build a life with. Someone I can build a family with. Someone that I can express God's good gift of sex in an honoring way. I could go on for hours about the beauty of marriage and how God has incredibly blessed us with it. But even then, after hours of talking it through and thinking it through, I don't think we could fully understand its true beauty. Marriage is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to mankind. Now, a marriage that's going well and according to God's design is really a beautiful thing. But unfortunately, the opposite of that is true as well. A marriage that is suffering because of sin creeping its way in is really one of the most sorrowful and challenging things that someone has to endure. It's like when you're a child and your parents tell you that you're going to do do something. It's something that you love to do so much because you know it's going to be so wonderful. But then all of a sudden, something happens and you can't do it anymore. The sorrow is even greater because of how wonderful the thing was. And the same is true of marriage. Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is wonderful. It's meant to be this great thing. But when it doesn't live up to what God has designed it to be, it is so hard. And it is so painful. And perhaps as I described this marriage to you and the beauty of it, you are thinking to yourself, I only wish. I only wish that I had a husband who treated me like God designed it to be. I only wish that I, I had a wife that I could confide in like that without being embarrassed or chastised because of it. Whatever it is that you're talking about, that's not what I've experienced. That's not what I see marriage as. And if that's you, I'm, I'm incredibly sorry. I'm sorry that you have to suffer through that. I'm sorry that the place where you were supposed to find companionship and joy and love and comfort and protection and warmth has now become the place of the greatest sorrow for you. That's not what marriage is supposed to be. But I do want to encourage you in this. God hears the cries of his children. And God is right there with you in your suffering. He understands completely what it's like to have a people who are called to love him but don't love him back. He understands what it's like to be cast aside while its bride goes after other men. He understands exactly how you're feeling. And he deeply cares for you. And he will get you through this. God is able to do even the impossible things and to change even the most broken marriages back into something beautiful, back to what he designed it to be. I'm not promising that God will 
restore your marriage. I don't think I can make that promise, but I can promise you this, that God will strengthen you to do what he's called you to do within your marriage, that he's going to help you to love even when it's hard, that he's going to help you to respect even when it's not deserved, that he's going to help you to carry on even when you feel like you can't, and that he's going to be with you when you're sitting there alone in your room experiencing the suffering of a difficult marriage. And if he so desires, perhaps he will change the hard heart of your spouse and make your marriage into what it's meant to be. And so don't give up. Don't give up on God. God can change your marriage and God will definitely get you through even a difficult marriage. Now moving on to the fourth and final point regarding marriage. We see that marriage is foundational to society. Marriage is foundational to society. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say for us, marriage is foundational to society. But it is implicitly stated for us in that marriage is the very first institution that is established. You see, before the government, before schools, even before the church of Jesus Christ, marriage is established as the first and foundational institution to human flourishing. If you remember the article that I read in my introduction, it involved a call for a dismantling of marriage. You know, marriage is this, this evil institution used to cage women, and it needs to be resisted, and it needs to be destroyed. But I honestly don't think anyone who is calling for this actually knows the detriment that that would bring upon society. Listen to a few statistics that I looked up about the importance of marriage for the well-being of everyone in society. 63% of suicides come from single-parent homes. 90% of all homeless or runaway children are from single-parent homes. 80% of rapists with anger problems are from single-parent homes. 72% of all high school dropouts Single-parent homes. 85% of children who have behavior disorders are from single-parent homes. A child born to a single mother is five times more likely to live in poverty and ten times more likely to end up in jail. So in other words, if you listen to the feminists who claim to be fighting for the best interests of women, expect society to get a lot worse. Expect murder to rise. Expect rape to rise. Expect theft to rise. Expect illiteracy to rise. Depression, schizophrenia, homelessness, starvation, bankruptcy. You abandon marriage and you sentence your society to death. It's exactly what you're doing. And unfortunately, that's where we're headed in our society today. That's where Canada is headed. That's where the majority of the countries in the West are headed. In the States, for example... The marriage rate has dropped 60% over the past 50 years. In 1960, 5% of all births occurred outside of marriage. In 2000, 40% of all births occurred outside of marriage. And the thing is, all of these governments in charge of these countries where this is happening are, are seeing the decline of their societies and they know that they need to do something about it. And so they go and they, they institute all of these programs to increase economic success, to, to cut down on crime, to increase 
You know, graduation rates in high school and decreased mental health. But the solution isn't government programs. It's far simpler than that. The solution comes from the very first pages of Scripture. Return to a biblical view of marriage. And all of these things are going to decrease. It's that simple. Studies have shown time and time again that there is nothing more important for personal well-being, positive social order, and general success in life than being raised by your biological parents committed to each other in a stable marriage. I mean, who would have known that God had it right all this time? Now, because this is true, there are some applications for us as Christians. First, you need to fight in your life for a good marriage. You need to fight in your life for a good marriage. Your marriage extends beyond just your own family. I have a great desire to see society reformed and restored back to a biblical understanding of God, man, and the world. That's in part why we're doing this series. And one of the most important things that we can all be doing to see our society head in that direction is to focus upon our marriages and to help others with theirs. Make sure that you're striving hard to have a marriage that is going to last. Broken marriages are not only difficult for you, but your children will bear the biggest effects of it. And so if you're, if you're struggling, it is absolutely worth fighting for. You know, put to death the things that are, are causing division in your marriage. Be willing to sacrifice your money, your time, your pleasure, your own desires to strengthen your marriage. You know, if you have a bad marriage and you haven't been on a date with your wife in a year, stop going and hanging out with the boys and go on a date with your wife. Do what is necessary to strengthen your marriage. Humble yourself and seek help if your marriage is falling apart. It's worth fighting for. Do you think your marriage is worth fighting for? If you do, what what signs do you see that you're actually fighting to change your marriage and to conform it to, to what Scripture says is a beautiful and godly marriage? That's the first application. Second, a biblical understanding of marriage is a hill that's worth dying on. Biblical understanding of marriage is a hill that's worth dying on. Churches that are silent on the issue of marriage claim to be doing so because they they don't want to be offending people and they're being loving to the community around them by being silent, but that's just bogus. If if the church won't stand on marriage, if the church is going to cower away when they call us bigots for speaking the truth on marriage, if the church is not willing to proclaim boldly God's design for marriage and the culture around us, we are sentencing our society to ruin. And that's not loving at all. It's not loving to see someone in a a building that is about to collapse and say, I don't want to offend you and tell you to run out of the building because you might get sad or your feelings might get hurt. No, it's loving to stand upon the truth and to proclaim the truth. Christian marriage is the bedrock of society. And if Christians are not willing to stand on it, society goes down. And I think that we will be held accountable for that. If we know the truth and we fail to speak it, God is going to hold us accountable because we've not stewarded his word and his truth well. Now, we are going to face opposition if we do so. People are going to try to cancel us. They're going to call us 
hateful. They're going to try and run us out of town for preaching the truth about God. But we don't budge. And we don't budge because we love God and we love his truth. But we also don't budge because we genuinely love our neighbors. I'm going to speak the truth about marriage because I love Smith Falls. I'm going to speak the truth about marriage because I love those who are lost. I'm going to speak the truth about marriage because I want those who are not experiencing a good and godly marriage according to God's design because I want them to experience that. And so we speak the truth as Christians in love. We don't do so in hatred. In fact, we extend compassion and grace in the face of hatred. And we point them to the hope that they have for their lives if they will turn to Jesus Christ. See, marriage, Christian marriage, is a hill that's worth dying on or else society itself is going to die. Well, this morning, we've just touched the surface of this topic of marriage. We've seen that marriage is instituted and defined by God. We've seen that marriage is a holy and solemn covenant before God. We've seen that marriage is a truly beautiful institution when we seek God's design for it. And we've seen that marriage is foundational to human flourishing and we will not bend the knee to society's attack on it. Marriage is important to God. We see this all throughout Scripture. You know that the Bible begins here with this marriage passage, but it also ends with a marriage passage, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Marriage is very important to God. And so you can be certain that no matter where your marriage is at, strong and healthy, or you're struggling to keep your head above water and you're almost ready to go down, you can know this, that God is for your marriage. That God is for your marriage. That God wants to redeem and to strengthen your marriage. And the beautiful truth is, is that he can do those things. He can. He can redeem and he can make your marriage into something that it's meant to be. Let me pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for this time of studying your word. We pray, Lord God, I know here that there are people who are struggling in marriage. I know even in my own marriage that there are many areas where I need to grow as a husband, where I need to walk more in line with the call to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And I pray, God, that for all of us, that we would humble ourselves, that we would come to you, and that we would ask you, Lord God, would you restore that which is broken? And would you strengthen that which is already strong? And would you, Lord, bring repentance where repentance is necessary? Would you bring confession where confession is necessary, and Lord God, would you bring forgiveness and grace that overcomes even a great multitude of sins. I pray, Lord God, that you would help those who are suffering in marriages right now, that you would strengthen them. Lord, that you would give them patience, that you would give them strength. And I pray, Lord, that this series would be an opportunity for us all to talk with ourselves, to talk with our children about marriage and how we can better honor and glorify you through ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.